read from Ezekiel 37, but I think it's only right that before we dive into God's Word, we allow Him to prepare our hearts and our minds to receive the message that He has for us. So would you please bow your heads and pray with me? Lord God, we give you thanks that you have indeed gathered us together in this place that we might, that we might once more hear your Word spoken to us. And Lord, we pray that your Spirit would indeed move that you would open up our hearts and our minds, that we would receive the message that you have for us. And Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So Ezekiel 37 actually opens with an image that quite honestly is a very stark, terrifying, and depressing picture. It's image of a graveyard. It's a, it's a valley that is filled with dry bones. An image of darkness and death. And honestly, this is a hard image like many of the, the images that we've found in Ezekiel. What we find is that often the visions of hope that we've been seeing are buried beneath these very stark images of warning. Difficult images for us to wrestle with. And honestly, uh, the, the image of death in a graveyard is one that's hard to wrestle with regardless of what culture or what age you live in. Death is one of those things that we would prefer not to dwell on, much less think about. But I would argue that we have a particularly hard time talking about death and the end of life here in America. In fact, we do quite a lot to try and insulate ourselves from ever having to face this truth, face this reality that death is something that we're all eventually going to have to contend with. One of the ways in which we try to insulate ourselves from it is simply by pouring ourselves into the pleasures of the moment. We pursue things like pleasures and parties and positions and possessions. We throw ourselves into our jobs and into our families, into our hobbies, into building nicer homes, acquiring more comfortable clothing, going on bigger and better and longer vacations if possible. All these ways in which we try to live in the present moment and not think about the fact that this life that we have is short, that it's finite, that it could be taken from us at any moment. This is the way in which we try to protect ourselves from ever really thinking through and talking about things like death. The other way that we try to deal with it is honestly by just making it a little bit more normal, a little bit more palatable. Uh, one uh, example is something that actually comes from my childhood is the movie The Lion King. And I don't know how many of you have seen The Lion King or remember The Lion King, but The Lion King is a story of Simba, right? This young lion cub, and he is destined to grow up and become the, the king of Pride Rock and then the king of the Pride Lands. And in the beginning of the movie, his father Mufasa takes him to the top of Pride Rock as the sun rises, and he wants to show him his whole kingdom. And he says, Simba, we're all a part of the great circle of life. I can't do it as well as James Earl Jones does. But he's like, we're all a part of the great symbol of life. He's like, well, how, how do you, what do you mean? I thought we were at the top of the food chain. You know, like, we eat the antelope. And he's like, he's like yes, Simba, but when we die, you know, our bodies become uh, uh, decay into the grass, and, and then the antelopes eat the grass. And so you see, we're all a part of the great circle of life. And everybody's like, oh, that sounds so nice. Great circle of life. Elton John sings it. Everybody loves it. Animals and stuff, lots of colors, until you stop and you think about what this father just told his son. He's like, ah, Simba, one day you're fertilizer. That's what he said. That's the only hope that he can give Simba. One day your day will come and you'll be worm food. 
And we're sitting there, we're just like, that's actually not very exciting. That's not very hopeful. You know, we can like uh, animate it and illustrate it and put music to it. But at the end of the day, it's still a really depressing truth. And one that we would prefer to not have to face. And yet here, God rips the band-aid off by taking Ezekiel to a valley of dry bones. And asking him the question that we are so eager to avoid. Can these bones live? Can these bones live? Because the reality is, is it's a hopeless picture. These aren't just bodies that have uh, freshly died. These are bones that are, that are dry. In fact, at one point, Ezekiel says it, they are very dry. It's his uh, Hebrew way of saying they are deader than dead. And God asked the question, can these bones live? Is there anything beyond death? Is there any way of coming back from this? This devastation that you find yourself standing in. You see, because it's a truth that we have to wrestle with, it touches every single one of us. You see, for the Israelites, it was touching them in a pretty deep and profound way because this is quite late now in Ezekiel's prophetic career. Early on, when Ezekiel first was commissioned to be a, a prophet by God, the people in, uh, in Babylon were saying, well, well, this is just for a short time. Eventually, God's plan is going to come through, and we're going to get to go home. Eventually, God is going to punish the Babylonians, and we're going to be delivered, and we'll go back to life as normal. We'll be back in our comfortable houses, we're back with our uh, friends and family, back in the places that are familiar, and we won't have to face uh, any of this hardship or difficulty. But the truth is, it's now been decades. And Nebuchadnezzar has not just invaded Jerusalem once, he's already now come a second time, and during the second invasion, he smashes the entire city flat. It's totally destroyed, burned down, he's laid waste to the surrounding land and regions, and the people have been dwelling in exile for now several decades, and they're starting to really wrestle with the fact that this might actually finally be their end. In fact, at one point, God says he knows what his people are saying. They've been saying our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. That's actually a quote from the book of Deuteronomy where Moses tells the people to keep God's covenant. And he says that if you don't keep God's covenant, you will be cut off. And the people now facing their exile are actually facing the end of their way of life. They're facing the end of their culture, the end of their language, the end of their lineage, as, as they're being basically forced to join into Babylonian culture and they have the threat of assimilation and there's no hope of any possible return to their homeland. They are touched by death. They are meeting and facing their ends. And it's a dilemma that we all wrestle with. Because there are moments that come in life when we realize just how truly close death is. And we are touched by death in some small way. Perhaps it is in the loss of a loved one or a friend. We suddenly realize just how short and fleeting life is. Or maybe it's in when something uh, that we had placed all of our hopes and our trust in is suddenly taken from us and we wonder, is there anything else to this life. I worked so hard and suddenly all these achievements, all these accomplishments have just been stripped away. 
Maybe it's realizing that the body that we could count on no longer works as well as it should. Maybe it's because we get a cold or we're brought down by illness or honestly we just wake up in the morning and certain things make noises that they didn't make before. And we realize that stuff that didn't used to hurt kind of hurts now. Or you're training for a World Vision Marathon and you run 12 miles on Friday morning and then you can't walk the rest of the day. That was my Friday. We have these moments when we start to realize that life is finite, life is short. Our temptation is to try and run from them and to insulate ourselves from them, but that just makes it worse. I can't tell you how many times I've, I've sat down with a family to plan a funeral only to find that the loved one who passed away had no will, no plans laid out, no provisions made for their loved ones who are left behind. Why? Because they didn't want to face it. They thought they had more time. But we have to face it. Because ultimately there will come those moments and if we don't face it, we will be overwhelmed by it. And that's what God wants Ezekiel to see. That's why he asks him the tough question, can these bones live? And Ezekiel has known God enough now. He's gotten far enough now in his career to give what I think is actually a pretty good answer. That when God asks him, is there any way that life can come from all of this? Ezekiel's response is, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. It's a confession that if anybody knows that this, that they can, it's going to be the God who is the God of life and death. And the way that God then responds to that is in some way that's just absolutely incredible. Here's what he says. He says, Ezekiel prophesied to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life and then you will know that I am the Lord. And so I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked and tendons and flesh appeared on them and skin covered them, and there was, uh, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come, breathe from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may live. And so I prophesied as he commanded me and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Many people have wondered about this incredible vision. They wondered actually why it's, they find it interesting that God tells Ezekiel to prophesy, and, but he ends up having to do it twice. He prophesies and these bones are knit back together as bodies, but they're still not alive yet. And then he has to prophesy again and suddenly he breath enters them and they, and they stand up a, a full army. But biblical scholars carefully studying this text have noted that this text is an echo of something. It's an echo of something that we find all the way back in Genesis 2 where we read that God took dust from the ground and created the first human being, but there was no life in him. And then in an incredible act of power and of intimacy, it says that God breathed his breath into him and he became a living being. See, what's happening in Ezekiel 37 is God is saying that I who created all of human life from the dust of the ground will once more make life where there is nothing. 
That in the midst of darkness, I will bring light. That in a valley of death, I will bring forth life. Because when my word is spoken, my breath will uh, flow forth. That when my word is preached, my spirit will move. And I will bring you back from the dead. That what looks like an ending to you is but the beginning of a new work that I am about to do. That what seems like a closed door and a point of no return is in my hands the raw materials of a new garden of life which I will make. Because he goes on and he says to them, Son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. But this is what the sovereign Lord says, My people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. See, what he's saying is he's saying, Ezekiel, I've never stopped being the Lord of life. I've never stopped being the one who can take an impossible situation and bring about something new. I've never stopped being the one who can take the dust of death and once more fashion it into living human life, abundant life, everlasting life. He says, I am the God who will open your graves once more. And this is an incredible hope to give to a world that is indeed touched by death. It's a beautiful hope, uh, quite honestly, because it's one that we desperately need. Now, I've, I've said this to many people, and most people don't believe me, and I think maybe you have to be a pastor to get this. But I've told people many times, I would rather do a funeral for a Christian who has died in faith than to do a wedding. And here's why. In weddings, I'm trying to preach to a couple and tell them, hey, these promises that you're making to each other, these are serious, they're lifelong, and these are the things that you're going to need in order to carry you through some of life's not-so-great moments, some of life's darkest valleys. You need these promises and these, these, these covenant promises you're making to each other and that God is making to you. But they're so in love, you know, it's a party time. They're like, yeah, yeah, okay, all right. And you know, everybody's just having a good time. Like, they're not ready to hear it. But when you get to a funeral, suddenly people are ready to begin uh, opening their ears because now we really need good news. Because we're brought face to face with death, and yet what I love about being able to, to preach at those moments is that we get to speak exactly what Ezekiel is talking about here, that this, although terrible, is not the end. That when we recoil at the loss and the death of a loved one, that is right. Because in God's plan, death isn't natural. It's not a part of a circle of life. This is an invasion. This is an injustice upon what he's created. But there's good news. Because in God's hands, this is not the end. His promise is that he is a God of resurrection. He is a God who can reach down into death and bring forth life. He is a God who opens our graves once more and promises us that we will never again be separated from his love. And we know it's true because he's already done it. It's not just some sort of Disney movie that we get to animate and put a nice soundtrack around. In 33 AD, a man who was brutally nailed to a cross and buried walked out of his tomb once more three days later and breathed in the fresh air. 
walked out of the darkness of death and into the light of life. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, and whoever believes in me shall never die. And we know that he can back that promise up because he's done it. We have a God who takes what to us looks like a dead end and makes it just the beginning of an eternal journey. And this is a kind of hope that is able to then pierce every darkness that we face, every ending that we encounter. This is part of the reason why Christians in the Roman Empire were able to proclaim their hope even in the face of lions. Even as they were thrown into the arenas and faced persecution, they could proclaim that there is life beyond the terrors of this world. That God is one day going to come and make all things new. Why? Because they'd seen it done once before. It's part of what has enabled Christian missionaries to go to some of the bleak places in the world and face certain death and rejection and yet do so with joy because they know that people there need hope. It's part of the reason why Christians have fought against things like injustice down through the centuries so that even in the Nazi death camps, Dietrich Bonhoeffer could kneel down and pray and sing hymns to his God. Why Christians go throughout the world into brothels and to undo the sex trade, to take to some of the darkest places on the face of the planet and say, God's life can happen here. His light can pierce this darkness and there is a new dawn. Why? Because he's done it. And he will do it again. It's part of what led the great poet George Herbert to write these lines. He says, ah, poor death, where is thy glory? Where is thy famous force, thy ancient sting? Poor death, who is hurt thereby? Thy curse being laid on him makes thee accursed. Spare not, do thy worst. I shall be one day much better than before. Thou so much worse, that thou shalt be no more. Herbert understood that in the resurrection of Jesus, the only thing that now comes to an end is death itself. That we have a hope that can see us through every dark valley. There's one more thing that we dare not miss in this story, in this vision of hope that God gives us. And that's how God does it. Small detail. It might be easy to miss. But when God is about to do this new work, what does he tell Ezekiel to do? Just open your mouth. Just prophesy. Just speak. Because when you speak, my spirit moves. When you proclaim my word, I do miracles in the world. He invites us to simply speak. He uses these words throughout this passage. He talks about uh, making breath enter you, prophesying to the four winds and his spirit moving. But one of the things that's so incredible about these words that we translate as three in English is that in Hebrew, they're one. It's one word. It's the word ruach. Word can be translated spirit, wind, or breath because once again, we encounter an echo from something from the beginning of Scripture. It's the same word that's used when it talks about the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. 
that as his winds begin to move, new life is created. The same word that's spoken when he breathes the breath of life into Adam is the word ruach. And what God is saying is he's saying, when my word is proclaimed, I do a new creative thing where there was darkness and closed doors. And all you have to do as my people is speak my words. And lest we doubt it, note what Jesus told his disciples at the very end of the Gospel of John as he sends them out. He says this, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus says that when we go and when we proclaim good news, new life takes root. People who are wandering in darkness and in the valley of the shadow of death suddenly are brought to life again. And the invitation that he makes to us is that we are to be the speakers. The ones who go and proclaim good news to those who so desperately need to hear it. And one of the amazing promises that that he gives us is that when that happens, he is at work. I don't know about you, there have been many times when I've heard Christians say, I can't share my faith with this one particular person or that particular person because the door is closed. It's too late. They don't want to hear it. But what Ezekiel 37 tells us is that when we are faithful to sharing good news, God is doing something. I remember when this really came home to me as uh, very early on in my ministry when I was working with college students. We had a conference where the, the students who are part of our ministries on the various campuses around Chicago were invited to come to this conference for a weekend, but they were also invited to invite their non-Christian friends, those who had questions and doubts and, and really didn't believe. And, and so they, they took up that challenge and they invited a lot of their non-Christian friends. And I remember the very first night as we got together in small groups and kicked off our conversations for the weekend, there was a, a young uh, woman named Christy. And Christy sat down and she's like, look, let me just get this out into the open. Okay, I'm done with church. I don't believe in God or Jesus. I'm not interested in any of these conversations. And I just came to hang out with my friends. I was like, oh boy, can I switch small groups? Oh wait, I'm in charge? Never mind. And sure enough, every conversation, you know, as we're sitting down to talk, here comes Christy with that wall up and these, these words of accusation and these hard questions. But as we moved through the weekends together, As we engaged in conversations, as we studied God's word, as we worshiped and we prayed together, suddenly those questions started to get a little softer, a little more honest, a little bit more authentic. And I remember the last night as we were worshiping together, a speaker was up there and saying, look, there are some of you who you were invited this weekend and you've been feeling like God is on the move. Something is stirring within you. You sense that God has been calling to you. God has been, inviting to, uh, has been inviting you. And his desire here now is to give you a hope that is from everlasting to everlasting. To give you the life that you've been longing for. To breathe within you and wake you up and bring you back to himself. And what we want to encourage you to do tonight is to not ignore the movement of his spirit. But to respond to his invitation. There are staff members around the room who want to pray with you. And so as we worship, if that's you, go up and get some prayer. We'd love to pray for you as you take that step in response to what God is already doing within you. And at that moment, as students stood, Christy jumped out of her chair and ran across that room. Grabbed my hands and she said, I don't have all the answers, 
but I feel like this is coming home. I feel like God has been doing something. As we've been talking, as I've been listening, as you've been praying, and I'm ready. Gets better. Christy went back to her campus and became the leader, the student leader of evangelism in her chapter on that campus. And for the next two years, she brought speakers onto campus who could address the questions of her classmates. She started small group Bible studies and invited other skeptics like herself to join and to look at the words of God for themselves. She sat around uh, tables over coffee with her friends, heard their objections, pointed them to Jesus, and prayed and prayed and prayed. And she saw how when we speak God's word, his spirit moves. How he brings to life those who are dead. Because she'd heard good news. That Jesus did not come to make bad people good. He came to bring dead people to life. And that invitation is for all of us. It's one that we've received. It's one that we're called to give. And so don't lose heart. But prophesy. Don't get discouraged, but speak. Don't become overwhelmed, but hope. And speak words of hope and life to a world that so desperately needs to hear it, because when, I, when my word is spoken, my spirit moves. With that in mind that I wanted to pray, would you pray with me? Lord, we've been given an incredible privilege and that's to be the speakers of your word. Those who know that when you speak, your spirit moves. And that when we join you in that mission, you are at work bringing life to those who are dead. Bringing light into places of darkness. You're able to walk through a valley of dry bones and raise us again to open our graves and give us the promise of eternity, which we so desperately need. Because in our world, a world that is touched and tainted by brokenness and by death, you say, I'm not done. I'm doing a new thing. And we see that first in your son, Jesus, who rose again from the dead and who now breathes upon us and calls us to go. That for just as he was sent by you, so now we are sent by him. Lord, we pray that we would speak that message of hope with gentleness and love. And that as we speak, your spirit would move and open hearts and minds that new people might be welcomed home and brought to life. It's in your name, Lord Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life that we say, Amen.